0: Welcome to In Layman's Terms, a podcast dedicated to discipleship and putting scripture to use in our daily lives. I'm your host, Todd Seifert. I'm the communications director for the Great Plains Conference of the United Methodist Church, comprised of approximately 1,000 churches in Kansas and Nebraska. As the title of this podcast suggests, I'm not ordained clergy, so what I share comes to you in layman's terms. I have more than 20 years of experience teaching the Bible to everyone from teens to 90-somethings, and I'm excited to share what Scripture has to say to us in today's society, and I love to tell stories of how people live their faith. Some episodes focus on a person or church doing great things to serve as the hands and feet of Christ. Some episodes include interviews with experts who can help us along our faith journey. And other episodes include some short reflections on Scripture. Thank you for joining me. the voice of george floyd he's 46 years old he's an african-american man in minneapolis minnesota who's accused of paying for cigarettes at a deli with a fake 20 dollar bill if he's guilty he's probably in big trouble but we'll never know he was begging for a chance to breathe with the minneapolis police officer's knee pressing down on his neck for more than eight minutes floyd isn't struggling he's lying down on the pavement he's in handcuffs what we're hearing are some of his last words. George Floyd died May 25th without getting the chance to take another breath. He was an unarmed black man who never got his day in court, never had the chance to confront his accuser, to exercise his Sixth Amendment right. Instead, he's dead. Dead like so many other black men and women. Dead like Ahmad Arbery, who died at the hands of white men who suspected him of theft, Arbury was out for a run in Georgia. So far, no evidence has surfaced to indicate he took anything. At least two men have been charged in Arbery's death. He's dead like Brianna Taylor, a woman killed when officers on a drug raid used what is called a no-knock warrant and entered her apartment. Her boyfriend attempted to defend them by shooting one officer. In the return fire, she was hit at least eight times. No officer has been arrested or even fired as of this recording. Floyd's death prompted people across the country, even overseas actually, to launch protests. Some rallies turned violent, with looting and property being damaged, but most were peaceful, with speakers telling the story of a race of people embattled since the first African slaves landed in the New World in 1619. Most of the marches and rallies emphasized the all too often overlooked truth Black Lives Matter. Many of you know I served as an editor in the USA Today network for 14 years and as a journalist for 20 years before answering the call to communications ministry. I used to write two columns and as many as five editorials a week. I had plenty of opportunities to lend my voice to many critical topics in my community. Well, now I have this podcast, so I decided to explore the hot button, often controversial, never more important than now topic of racism. I want to start by thanking six African-American pastors in the Great Plains Conference, Robert Johnson, Kevis Harding, and Rhonda Kingwood in the Wichita area of Kansas, Dee Williamson from Salina, Kansas, Portia Cavett of Omaha, Nebraska, and Kirsty Engel of Lincoln, Nebraska. They each took time to talk to me about race relations in their communities, provided their analysis of how we got to this point in our country, and they shared ideas of what the church can do to fulfill its mission of making disciples of Jesus Christ in the context of standing up for justice for people of color. And make no mistake, folks, racism is most definitely a justice issue. In their voices, you're going to hear pain. You're going to hear passion. You're going to hear concern. You're going to hear fatigue. And you're going to hear truth. Truth about what it means to be black in America, liturgical caller or not. You'll hear criticism and some things that you might find a little difficult to hear. If their words make you uncomfortable, well, I'm really not sorry. People like me, white, middle-class folks across the Great Plains and beyond, need to hear their stories. We'll start with Rev. Dr. Kevis Harding, pastor of Delrose United Methodist Church, a largely African-American church in Wichita. He was trying to enjoy a time of barbecuing outdoors with his family when he came across a disturbing video.
1: As you're trying to deal with this pandemic and trying to keep yourself safe safe distance and uh you you're you're sitting on uh memorial day barbecuing watching your grandson's little pool and all of a sudden you get all these messages saying have you seen this and i was i felt i started crying right there in my backyard i was just like no this is not real so i watched it again and, and then i my so my daughter, uh, who's an RN nurse, 25, and then my wife, they're outdoors with us. We had her had her you know playing the music, and I'm barbecuing, and my grandson's playing this. He's 10 months old, playing in the pool and uh, one of those little baby pools, you know, plastic things, and uh, and my wife says, "What's going on?" And I said, i to I don't want to show it to you, you know, because it was like this is just uh, beyond pain us. I just, just don't want to." And then my wife, let me just sit and she, you know, then my daughter. And so here we are on Memorial Day weekend going, what? I mean, well, and it was, we were still trying to believe it was, you know, well, this can't be real. And then when the protest broke out the next night, I mean, the next night, it was. And so that's when I was, you know, I was like, man. And so I literally had to tear my sermon up and start over.
2: I think the whole video was the catalyst.
0: That's Reverend Dee Williamson. She's the district superintendent for the Salina District and for part of the Hayes District in the Great Plains Conference. She's talking about what caused so much emotion to be stirred by the death of George Floyd.
2: And how long it was, you know, mm-hmm. and to hear him say, I can't breathe, I, I can't breathe, I can't move, I can't breathe. And then um, for him to call for his mother who died two years before, you know, had died two years earlier, you know, as his head lay there, you know, it's like, what is this? this and, and, and other officers around, and the person who was videoing with their phone, what could they have done? They couldn't have done anything without putting themselves in more danger, you know, because, you know, you, you can't just uh, rush and attack a, an officer. You know what I'm saying? And, uh, but there were four of them, and this guy couldn't— I think that, that, that's enough. It's like a public lynching.
0: It might seem obvious to some people, but after so many deaths— Especially high profile deaths recently, I asked Reverend Robert Johnson, lead pastor of Wichita St. Mark United Methodist Church, why he thought George Floyd's death resonated so much with so many people
3: for me the the, the the murder the two the two that bothered me the most were trayvon Martin that got because every time I think about it i'm I'm almost come to tears the whole thing about this kid eating skittles. Walk into his own, walking in his community, and he ends up dead, just, I just I haven't gotten over that. And then the second one was Sandra Bland, uh, that whole incident in Texas where this lady gets stopped and where she's, I mean, of course she's anxious of herself, but the officer responds to her and ups the an, anxiety. And it leads to, so those were the two, I think with George, Floyd, two things. Number one is I think that this has been building. So I think with every, every murder, uh, our alleged murder, that's been an increase in anxiety and anger. His murder comes after the murder of Ahmad Aubrey and Sean Reed and uh, the young lady uh, who dies while she's sleeping. So those three things happened re- just recently. So that was all. So if this and this anxiety has been building these those three murders happen, alleged murders happen. And then this happens. And I just think it popped to court. And the second thing I think that happened, happened is that I think it happened in the midst of a nation that's already riddled with anxiety from COVID-19. Mm-hmm. me and and there are rumors and conspiracies everywhere among all demographics about how this thing got started, where it came from, who's benefiting from it, who's not getting taken care of, all that stuff's in the atmosphere. And then he dies. And I I think it's so interesting, he dies. So COVID-19 makes it difficult to breathe. And he dies saying, I can't breathe.
0: The six pastors I spoke with all agreed that one major reason so many people have taken to the streets to protest after the death of George Floyd was that video. I've read many a history book that talked about the sentiment of the Vietnam War turning when video of the brutality of the battlefield made its way onto television and therefore into Americans' living rooms. Now, a video showing injustice, showing a man's final moments in his death, are circulating on social media and on news websites. And people are taking notice. The primary angle of that video, that people usually see, shows a single officer with his knee on Floyd's neck. The Reverend Kirsty Engle, lead pastor at First United Methodist Church in Lincoln, Nebraska, points out that other angles from video show a much more complicated story.
4: Todd, there's another layer, and this would preach all by itself. Talk about the different vantage points. So the first video that came out, we saw one angle, and it looked like one cop. But boy, oh boy, when you get that other angle, that video Mm -hmm. come out, and you see what's on the other side of that,
0: She's talking about another angle that shows at least three more officers, one veteran training officer in addition to the one holding down George Floyd, and then two others. One had been on the force for four days. The other was in just his third shift. Attorneys for those two newer officers say the rookies urged the training officer with his knee on George Floyd's neck to stop. Obviously, that didn't happen.
4: It just took my breath away. And so it's not always what meets the eye. Like at first, I literally thought I was seeing one situation, one cop keeping the citizens away, one cop with the knee on the neck, couldn't believe the other angle. So for me, I didn't notice that other angle until about 48 hours after watching the initial Mm tape, I was even more horrified. So that just from a preacher standpoint, everything, the way my brain thinks is like, wow. So what we thought we saw was even worse than what it really what really was happening, you know? It was even worse than I could have ever imagined.
0: Apparently, it took a video for people outside the black community to take notice of the injustices faced by an entire segment of our communities. The Reverend Portia Cavett, lead pastor at Claire Memorial United Methodist Church in Omaha, explains.
5: It's a shame that uh, it takes the fact that you have to see a video as well as to hear a video to see the injustice that African-American males have had to go through uh, with police to believe that it is true. And then for it to take three and a half days before this person is being charged, but all of us could hear him, uh, his plea for help, and to get off of his neck, let him up, that he cannot breathe, and you continue to remain pinning someone down for over eight minutes and for two minutes that they're not moving or saying anything and you still don't remove your knee, if that's not murder, I don't know what murder is.
0: Pastor Rhonda Kingwood, who leads the Wichita Heart of Christ congregation, explained that the anger felt by so many people comes from so many black men and women dying needlessly. I asked her to help me understand the pain that people were feeling and what words come to mind to describe those feelings.
6: If you looked at that video, if you saw it, and if you see the injustices that are happening all around us, the racism, then you understand that that the more we see, the more that um, happens around us, the more outrage we get and the more anger we feel. Um, the fact that he is a human being he deserves to live Mm. the fact that as people of faith we understand that no one person not one person should take the life of another the fact that he was uh, a part of a racist attack against a black man the fact that it's just completely wrong (laughs) the fact that we're tired that we're angry that we're pissed off I'm hearing outrage. I'm hearing anger. I'm hearing hurt. I'm hearing sorrow. I'm hearing that we're tired and and we're not okay. I'm hearing how long. I'm hearing when will it stop. And we've got to get Trump out of here. Uh, That change has to happen. That we've got to stand up. We've got to be together. We've got to vote. Uh, there's really not a lot of words that can express the hurt and the anger and the tears um, that we feel or that we hear. Um, and so I think that's the best way to put it, you know, together is to say, this is what we feel. We, we're, we're accepting and um, we're acknowledging these feelings that we have right now.
0: Here again is Robert Johnson from Wichita
6: this is the first time in my memory that there's been
3: more consensus among all Americans that that was over. I mean, that that was unnecessary. Like I've seen, um, uh, one, one, of the messages I saw early on that really was encouraging for me was from Franklin, uh, Franklin Graham, Billy Graham's son. I follow him on Twitter and he's always far right. He's always pro, uh pro police officer he's always pro order law and order and but he came out immediately and declared that it was wrong and that while he supports police officers let's pray that people who do these kinds of things will be held accountable and i was astonished i was and then i began to see that consistently through from other my 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 pastor colleagues that that was more whether they were conservative or liberal, uh, Democrat. Cause things tend to get fall along pol- political lines. Mm-hmm. But this was the first time that I've seen general consensus uh, that hey, this was wrong. Now what we do about it, how we respond to it. Of course, that the division starts again. But the fact of what happened that 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 the, that the officer was was over and,
0: Much of the discussion of late has been about police officers overstepping their bounds and treating people of color differently. When we return to In Layman's Terms, we'll talk about police interaction, the perception of a resident's relationship with police, and how we can improve as a society. We'll be back in just a moment.
3: How does your church celebrate big events? How does it gather the community together? How does it sometimes introduce you to people you might not have known? Many times in the Great Plains, it's with a potluck dinner. And that's what we try to do with our
0: podcast, Potluck. This is David Burke from the Great Plains Conference and host of Potluck, where we do in audio form all the things a potluck dinner does. Celebrate
3: big events, gather the community, and introduce you to new and interesting people. Listen to Potluck, available at greatplainsumc.org.
0: Welcome back to In Layman's Terms. In this episode, we're talking about racism and the death of George Floyd. Much of the spotlight, for right or wrong, is focused right now on police departments in the United States. My personal opinion... Just as not all protesters are looters damaging property, not all police officers are racist. In fact, I would argue that most protesters are peaceful. And I would argue that most police officers genuinely want to protect the public from the very real evil forces that we have living in our world today. But there's that video. The images and sounds of a man whose life is being snuffed out, with us all watching. Here's Reverend D. Williamston again. She's a district superintendent in the Great Plains Conference, and she's the Religious Affairs Coordinator for the NAACP in Salina, Kansas. That's toward the center of the state.
2: We can't allow this to keep happening. We've got to change the laws. We've got to change the policies, the training. We've got to require more mental stability, you know, mental burnout on, you know, officers. Because not every officer is a, is a bad person, you know. Um, uh, there are black officers. There's Hispanic officers. I think there needs to be more accountability and more help mental, you know, mentally as they go through the stresses of that type of work. We have to have more accountability uh, of our civic authorities, those who say they're going to protect us. And we're not being protected. You know, we're being killed, you know, and it's, I even get nervous when I, if I get stopped or if I see a police officer driving behind me and I know I've paid my insurance, I know I've, uh, my my registration tag is all changed. But if I just so happen to forget and it's the next day and I don't put my little sticker on and they stop me, I'm gonna, I'm like, you know, what are they going to do? Are they going to shoot me? Are they going to kill me? Are they going to, what's going to happen here? Am I going to get put in jail? You know, I've had those scary incidences where I've gotten stopped because I didn't know my, my license expired. And I was told, well, you know, I could put you in jail, but why would you tell me that? It's a Saturday. You, you know, said, I can't do anything about getting, my license. it's disturbing. You know, it makes me, it makes me want to cry. You know, that if my son gets stopped, I mean, he's going to jail, you know, or is he? You know, does somebody have the authority to just take his life out right there and just get away with it, you know? So that's that's the part that is so disturbing. It's like enough is enough.
0: I'm happy to say it's been a while, but I've had my share of speeding tickets in my days as a driver. When I see red and blue lights in my rearview mirror, my heart rate goes up. I feel a jolt of adrenaline. I wonder what I did wrong. My biggest fear in that situation? How expensive is my ticket going to be? And how long will I be inconvenienced as the officer writes me the ticket? That's the beginning and the end of my concern. But that's not necessarily the case for people of color. Here again is Portia Cavett from Omaha, Nebraska.
5: It sounds as if, uh, Todd, you already answered that yourself, the fact that you are saying that all you're worried about is getting the ticket. Why is it that a person of color has to be concerned that a cop pulling them over is going to deem them guilty based on the color of their skin. Whether you're Paisley White or whatever the case may be, why is there such a difference and a separation based on someone's skin color?
0: Here again is Kirsty Engel from Lincoln, Nebraska.
4: I will tell you, as a black woman, I still um, uphold our police department in Lincoln, especially, and all over. I know there are good cops, uh, but we still have to educate what is like proper policy when you are, for instance, arresting a black or brown or any individual for that matter? What is the proper? And we we wanna, as a community, we deserve to know what, what are those policies and if they look crazy or whatever, forgive that term, but we need to be all over it so that we can advocate for changing that, you know? So there's no gray area, so that no one has their knee on somebody's neck for eight minutes
0: again, you know? I asked some of my guests to share their stories of interactions with police. Again, here's Dee Williamson and Celina.
4: I got
2: up at four o'clock in the morning uh, from my townhouse here in Celina, and I was going to the gym. And four o'clock in the morning, there's nobody on the street. And so about 200 yards to the east of, uh, I was turning west onto a main road. I see some headlights and I'm like, well, that car is way down there so I can go ahead and turn out on the road. And I stopped at the stop sign and then I went out onto the street. And then, now remember, it's four o'clock in the morning because I think I'm going to get some exercise. And I switched lanes, but I didn't turn on my blinker. Now, this car was probably about uh, 100 yards behind me by then. and so As I'm going down the road, by the time it got to about 50 yards behind me, the red and blue went on. There were two cars on the street, myself and a uh, cruiser. The cruiser stopped me. And when the red lights and the blue lights went on, my heart jumped. And I'm like, what did I do? What's going on here? And so I pull over to a place where I could, you know, stop the vehicle, you know, to res- you know respect the authority that I'm being stopped. And I'm trying to figure out what did I, what did I do other than get up at four o'clock to go to the gym? Yeah. <laughs> and police officer came to my side he says uh, you came to a rolling stop now we're talking about almost now half a mile away and you didn't turn your signal on when you switched lanes and so I'm going to give you a citation now it wasn't just him there was another cop on the passenger side to the back of my car and my heart is racing the the sense of anxiety of you know that dread that would it you know i'm not going to live they're going to you know if i reach in the glove compartment just to get my insurance you know uh is he going to shoot you know is, is that person going to shoot me you know and I mean so my heart was just racing the anxiety the adrenaline was just going the anxiety was high and I was just I was scared you know I was actually scared and it's it's like it's it's just like you know you're, you're it's more than your stomach just dropping from riding on a roller coaster ride it's just like you tense up I tensed up You know, I can't speak for every black person and how they feel, or I can't even speak for my son and how he feels, but the anxiety of tensing up like this isn't going to go well. This isn't going to go well. When in some cases it's just a citation, but it's like, they're going to shoot me. They have a gun. They, They have the right to shoot me. I can't do anything about it if they do,
0: you know. Kevis Harding is a second career pastor. He served on the school board and is one of the most civic minded people that I know. That first career, he was a police officer in Wichita, Kansas.
1: I graduated from uh, college in 91 from University of Texas, El Paso, with a criminal justice major. My goal was that if I didn't go to the NFL, I was going to be an FBI agent. I even applied. I was going through the process, uh, even went through the, got to the first phase. I was moving and they found out I didn't have a second language. So they said, well, we want to, want you to come back in three years, but you need to go and serve your local community or someplace as a police officer get some experience and then come back. So I ended up. Um, Joining the wichita police department in uh, 90 right out 91 out of college and served five years loved it it was uh, i thought that was part of my i was going to be uh, my lifelong service to be in the key word is to be a peace officer uh, so much so that i wanted to police in my own neighborhood i was one of the first community police officers i thought that was part of my ministry and i was, and as a laity i thought okay i will bridge this gap in my community because see I grew up in the voice in the hood and colors and Crips and Bloods and friends who died. And so I was trying to sh- show that not all cops are bad and that 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 we're truly peace officers. And so that was my mission that that every day, I mean I was that was what I did. I prayed over my car. The, my other uh, police officers knew I was a Christian. They knew I would you know I talked about the Lord. I, I, I was, you know, but yet, I took care of the community. I didn't want to be a chaos officer. And that's what I see right now. You know, we're you know, police needs to be peace officer, not chaos. And and here we are. We look like military now. I mean, I don't remember putting that kind of gear on. We had helmets and uh, what we call nightsticks. And, and 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 I was involved in protests, particularly back in the '90s with uh, the abortion protests here in Wichita with Tiller and we, we, we arrested folks. No one was hurt, no one was shot. We, it was, they, they protested peacefully. I mean, they got loud and they screamed, but I never, and what I see today and what I saw on the street, I, I'm ne- it was never in our books, our rules of conduct of, of putting a knee into a man's neck, particularly for close to nine minutes. When I was a police officer, uh, I've been pulled over, but I didn't tell them I was a police officer on purpose, just to see how they would treat me. And 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 it wasn't it wasn't good until I had to finally tell them. Uh, I I just raised my badge up, and it's like, well, why you didn't show that in the first place? And the question was, why did I have to show that to you? Why well, did I have to show this badge? Just because I had, because I was in my early 20s, out of college, so I still had this car with tinted windows. I had woofers in the back, of bass playing. I'm playing uh, LL Cool J. I got these big rims on my cars. It's nice. It's legal, it, and, I, and but I'm riding through my own neighborhood. But I'm associate That car's been associated with as drug dealer. Not not gang member, but drug. Cause it's too nice of a car for a black guy to be driving around in the neighborhood like that. And so that was the one. And and even as a clergy, I've been pulled over, and now I don't have a badge. So I'm like, okay, whatever I did, follow the instructions. If they get loud, you let them get loud. If they want to disrespect you, let them disrespect. It's the whole process of giving your driver's license, you know, insurance, give them the insurance and. Well, where are you going? This is in, I was in, Bel- uh, going into uh, Eastboro. You know, it was like I was getting read, read my, the ride act of where was I going? And I think I was 10 miles over. I was thinking, it was it was 35, I was at 45, I believe, or even 44. Or so. It wasn't like I was like flying to the, having a seatbelt on. Uh, but after the whole, uh, I call it a lecture, you know, you know, this is what you better do next time. You know, and then he gives me a ticket. But first, he had to give me this stern, uh, obey the law, and don't don't mess up again. And it, it felt like the boy moment. You know, you know, this is what you better be doing that when you're out here, boy. And it, it, that's the pain. And and people going well, I, and it really pains me when I hear white people say, "Well, I've been." uh uh racism happens to me. I says racism can't happen to you, you might be someone may have been prejudiced towards you, but racism is about power. And the majority of America who has the power is white
0: people. Robert Johnson from Wichita says that black men in particular have to be careful when they're pulled over for any reason.
3: Even for me and I'm a pastor, I, I'm a, I'm a I'm a i am i am ai am am a, a middle class American. I'm an educate uh master's degree at uh, middle class America. My wife's a master has worked with Shell Oil for 30 years, now works with Siemens, uh two daughters. So I'm a middle class guy. I, I don't have any issues of impoverishment or you know, I've I face racism, but obviously I've done well. Uh, and so, but even with that, when it comes to encounters with the police. It makes no difference. I might as well have a when when I encounter police. For typically, the way they respond to me is, I might as well have a gang tattoo on my face, you know, with red eyes from from drug use or whatever. It's it doesn't. And so, because I've encountered that so many times, when when I if I if I'm something like if I when I've gotten speeding tickets. My concern was not the speeding ticket. My concern was more so how do I, you know, I don't want to do anything to frighten or to unsettle the officer because I don't know how he or she is going to respond. So I do things like immediately, I stop, I put both hands on the steering wheel immediately. I'll roll down my window, take out my, and I'll hold my license out out the window to make, so to say peace sign. Like, I don't, I'm not resisting. I'm not doing, I'm here's my license. And the officers will come up and then I'm I'm very, I don't, I am, like, I don't look at them. I look straight ahead as I'm talking to them just to make, and so, and that's the way I'm, I'm 54. I started, I guess that started, with, I know that it happened because I had an incident that happened when I was in grad, in, in theology school at SMU in my mid-20s where I was, uh, had an encounter with police that almost went horribly bad i hadn't done anything had been some some driver made an accusation about me driving down the highway waving a gun which was totally i don't even i've never owned a gun and they believed it and i stopped at a gas station i was on my way from houston to back to dallas for school and uh got stopped so that's the way that's that's the way i've encountered police and i so, I tell my daughter, even my daughters, and all young African Americans I know, that he- there's a- don't do anything that might frighten or unsettle or ruffle the feathers of a police, of a law enforcement person if you get stopped to have an encounter with them. And that's pretty much how we live.
0: Johnson said he came to a realization about how many in the white population and how many in the black population relate to police officers differently. That came during a trip to Mississippi.
3: So, my family, we were on um, Thanksgiving. We were headed to Mississippi for Thanksgiving. Stopped at a restaurant there in Jackson, Mississippi. Went in a restaurant, and there's a huge mural on the wall of a, of a kind of a, like a uh, uh, what's the guy who paints the, paints the beautiful American scenes? And they're often like a barbershop. Just uh, oh. very.
0: Like Norman Rockwell type stuff. Norman
3: Rockwell, okay. very Norman Rockwellish kind of mur- mural on the wall of a of a law enforcement person who stopped at a family's house, white family's house, and the kids are playing in his car, and the parents are, are, are leaning on the car, and the police officer is totally relaxed, he's leaning on his car, and it's just this beautiful Norman Rockwell scene. And I looked at it, and I said to my wife and daughters that, for, although I, I, I mean, I know the tension between the African-American community and law enforcement, but that was the first time that I really realized the difference. And I was like, okay, so I just realized that's why whenever these things happen, our white brothers and sisters don't respond in the same way because they have a totally different perspective on law enforcement. I was like, when I see law enforcement, it's total fear and it's total anxiety. But, but, but for many of them, their encounter is that that's our friend, that's our partner, this person's here to be, and that is a, so I use that story to kind of try to explain the, the significant total uh, difference in mindset between how African Americans encounter law enforcement and how other communities might encounter it.
0: Frustration, perhaps, is at an all-time high. People are angered. And so they're taken to the streets in hopes of bringing change, bringing true equality to a land that is supposed to be founded on the principle that all men and women are created equal. But if we're honest with ourselves, that's not how life in the United States has played out. Dee Williamston provides an analogy as she talks about racism.
2: We have to eradicate it. My, one of my analogies that I use for school, <laughs> I don't know if the professor liked it or not, but it was it was apropos in my head. Is just like, I lived in New York for a little while and um, the apartment building I had had roaches. And so I I would spray like at least once, twice a month. But every building and everywhere has roaches. So I don't want to just pick on on New York. (laughs) But, so I would spray, but when I sprayed, they would go to the next apartment building or the next apartment and they had to spray. So we all had to spray at the same time. So we'd kill them but they would leave their eggs behind. And then they would just run to other buildings in the sewer system, uh, subway. And so in order to eradicate it, you've got to eradicate all of it, but their eggs survive. And, you know, and each year, you know, the the chemicals that you, I, and I'm assuming, I'm not a scientist, uh, that you spray, they just become immune to that, you know? And so you got to keep adapting, you know, what it is going to take to eradicate these. And if you see the eggs, you can't let the eggs just stay around. And that's how I see racism is so entwined in, you know, it's like having roaches in a building.
0: So how do you eradicate racism? Something that predates the founding of our country by more than a hundred years. Well, you start by protesting. Now, from what I've seen, the vast majority of protesters have been peaceful, simply voicing their concerns and speaking out for their beliefs. In essence, practicing their First Amendment rights. And alongside, in the vast majority of cases, are police officers, standing and peacefully observing, listening. In some cases, they're even kneeling with protesters. Some are marching with people in the streets. But many of us have seen the unfortunate choices by a few police officers the pushing down of a man in his 70s in New York State, officers apparently beating up a protester behind a block wall that, it turns out, failed to shield their actions from the public. And there are some people who turn that righteous anger of a protest into an opportunity to damage property and steal. I read a really interesting article in The Atlantic that shared several facts about the looters according to law enforcement and behavioral experts interviewed for the story. First, those folks usually aren't really protesters. Usually they are people, white, black, and other races, who join the march only for the purpose of taking advantage of the situation. In other words, they aren't there to help the cause. Second. Accusations abound online about white supremacists leading this effort in various ways in an attempt to discount the Black Lives Matter movement. Still others believe that these looters are part of the Antifa movement, people who are fully against the political far right. Now let's pause for just a moment to explain what Antifa is. It's a term used for anti-fascists, but it's more of a descriptive term for people who believe a certain way in opposition to a political ideology than an organized group. Best I can tell, there's not really a club. It traces its beginnings to the 1930s in opposition to Adolf Hitler and to Benito Mussolini. Personally, I think the looting and property damage is regrettable, and I don't think I'm qualified to diagnose or explain what exactly is happening right now. But it's clear the looting amid what are meant to be peaceful protests comes from a place of frustration, either with society at large for its willingness to sustain racism, frustration with the current president, or both. Here again is Rhonda Kingwood from Wichita.
6: And I get that now it looks like, wow, you know, the rioting and the protests are more, but let's look back. We protested for Michael Brown. We protested for Eric Gardner. But what happens is, um, as the list goes on, we get more and more angry. And so by the time we've gotten here and we actually saw the murder, it was a murder straight out. And we actually saw it, oh yeah. And let me add to that, I I know I'm very passionate here, but let me me add to that. Um, Not only is it, you know, there've been killings everywhere, right? Um, George Floyd is in a list of so many. We've had people even here in Wichita that have been killed at the hands of, of police. We've had people all over that have done that. But the other piece of that is, we're angry because we have a person that is supposed to lead us, <laughs> that sits in the highest seat in this here America, but he leads out of violence. And, 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 and he, he sits and he allows people on Capitol buildings that are white, or Caucasian, if, if I need to say it in a correct way, um, that are standing there with assault rifles, with guns and they're good people and they say nothing, do nothing, don't try to make them move, nothing. Don't say put your guns away, nothing. But then you have folks that are outraged because you outright murdered somebody and we are doing peaceful protests, but then we have people that you send in So there are people that are put in there to make us look bad. And you're going to call us thugs.
0: I'm not trying to make any pro or anti-Donald Trump statements here. I just think it's important for people to hear how some of our African-American pastors in the Great Plains see this situation and evaluate the leadership from the highest office in the land. Frankly, they see a lack of compassion and a void of empathetic leadership. Here again is Kevis Harding from Wichita.
1: And and I I would never... um find myself, you know, demeaning. I try not to be, I more public, I was in a public office. I ran for school board, had two terms. So I understand the, the nasty letters you get because, you know, this is part of being in politics. But so part of my sermon was like, I'm doing this whole piece on uh, uh, Micah. Uh, what, is, what does the law require of us? And so I, I was trying to share that in the midst of this pandemic, what does the law require of us to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God? Those three things. So that was a three-part sermon series. So I started like um, May the 17th, 24th, and the 31st. And I just did do justice and very social justice issue, you know, and I'll explain about the theology of the cross, that it's not about just the... the The vertical part, you know, that's what they're asking. The vertical part of how do we need to please you, God, with our more piety and religious ceremonies. And God's going, no, no, I need you to be on the horizontal. Love each other, love your community, your neighborhood uh, with justice and mercy, and walk humbly with me. So I was getting through those. And so this um, Sunday was coming, the 31st was coming in. When I saw the protest that with the 26th all my outline that I was preparing I just literally tore it up stayed with the same text and dug deeper to sh- explain what to walk humbly with God is and I said this is a, this is this is your this is the person that you do not use it as an example who walks humbly with God you know, he's egotistic narcissistic self-serving self-loving none of that is of, of God nor Christ. And and then I break, go into what it means to walk humbly with God. And, and I really was breaking down because so often we tend to think walk humbly, let's be kumbaya, let's pray, let's forgive the officers. And I was like, I'm not here to talk about that. Walking humbly with God is is to submit your will to God's will. And so when you walk with God, and God calls you to have the, a prophetic voice. You've got to come out of your selfish desires and want to lay in a cut and say nothing and say this is going to be over. And God is calling you as preachers and clergy and laity to speak truth uh, uh, to, to power, to speak justice, to, to love mercy. And I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not even about politics anymore. I'm not about being a Democrat, Republican, Libertarian. Or, no. We have a person in leadership that is not speaking in the same tone as our Christian Judaic faith. I mean, the things we hear, I mean, I would be removed from, from, from this pulpit. I wouldn't, be, I wouldn't even be a clergy right now if I was to
3: do half what he's done in three plus years.
0: Here again is Robert Johnson from Wichita.
3: I think everyone's just kind of lost right now. I don't know that we've ever in my lifetime. I'm 54. I don't know that I've ever seen our nation go through a time, a crisis such as this, and and not have our president at least make an attempt to pull people together, uh, to give solace to everyone to try to speak to the hurts and pains of everybody. I've never, this is the first time in my lifetime that I, and I I know it's happened before, I know he's not the first, I'm sure he's not the first. Uh, This is the first time in my lifetime that we, I've gone, I've seen my nation go through a a period of profound pain, and we not hear from our president. Words that can come across as kind of glib and surface, but at least an attempt to soothe people's pain and calm everybody.
0: So again, how do we start to make the changes we want? No, the changes that we need, so that our country better reflects God's intention for this land. Kirsty Engel and Lincoln share some reflections on the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and his peaceful protests. And it's not just by people with darker skin, but people of all shades joining together.
4: I think for peaceful protesting, what that allows us to do as a people, and and first of all, I want to lift up my Anglo community because in Lincoln especially, I've seen more of the Anglo community really putting themselves out there. And I noticed that at at Washington DC as well, there is a lot of our younger Anglo community right with us. So I'm not, I don't want to divide us in any way. I I want to acknowledge that I do see people coming together, white, black, brown or whatever. But I think when we're, uh, if you go off of the beloved community of MLK, what that allows us to do is to think in a rational and a logical state and not just always thinking off of the emotions that may aggravate us. I understand why people are angry. Uh, I, I know I would never lose, but I get it. People are outraged. I get the outrage. But I think when we, uh, when we submit to this peaceful peace, what this allows is it opens doors for collaborations for next steps. Cause there has to be a next step beyond just the peaceful protesting. You know, it's gonna have to come in November and educating whether we are doing mail-in ballots or we're all putting on masks and saying we're going, you know, to vote or whatever. We have to be able to all come together, one mind, one body, uh, beautiful thought process of symbolically one, to think rationally of what next steps are going to be and when you're looting todd and when you're damaging in some cases our own community and so forth i mean to me yes it gets the rage out but then what's the next steps i mean if anything you have to do all of this putting pieces back together again whereas like a peaceful protest what that does is i think it's like one step and a larger narrative of people coming together to have a really logical methodical systemic process of how then do we, uh, you know, move for change and inclusion. And I think that's what this peaceful protesting does. To me, the last thing I'll say, peaceful protesting, which I plan to do again on um, Sunday, we're gathering at the Capitol, some people and a few of the clergy, it allows me to uh, reflect and meditate when I'm in in that thought process. It allows time for the Holy Spirit to guide us and to unify us and i think that's what why i'm a a huge supporter of peaceful protest. and martin luther king jr a great theologian great pastor great leader but he was a great thinker as well and i believe that until we can get into that space of not reactivity but proactiveness which is how i see that that peaceful movement and protesting that's where real change happens and that's where the holy spirit is really able to move in every fabric of our mind body and soul
0: so we're marching we're protesting we're taking part in vigils but what can the church and individual christians do to make sure this movement doesn't fade when the next big thing hits the news cycle we'll explore that when we return to in layman's terms in just a moment Matthew 28 tells us to make disciples of Jesus Christ, but how can you do that? You can help by providing some inspiration each morning to someone else. Just go to www.greatplainsumc.org dailydevotions. Once there, you'll find a QR code and a link to a sign-up page. Pick your day and your topic. If you need some assistance, there's even a link to the Vanderbilt University Daily Lectionary. Follow the instructions for submitting your devotion and you've done your part to help inspire and encourage others in their Christian walk. Again, that's www.greatplainsumc.org slash daily devotions. Help make more disciples today. Welcome back to In Layman's Terms. In this episode, we're talking in with six of our African-American pastors in the Great Plains Conference, and we're talking about racism and racial injustice. So far, we've talked about why George Floyd's death has resonated with so many people, and we've talked about the protests, but what can the church do? I asked each of my guests that question, and I thought it best to share their answers with you now. It comes down to a few key actions, and most of them involve white people, like me, to speak out from the pulpit and by our actions to allow the Holy Spirit to work and change the hearts and minds of men and women. Here again is Dee Williamson from Salina, Kansas.
2: We just got to stand together and, and not put people down. We've got to listen to people's stories, you know, and, and, and the church, in the church, in the white church, you, you got to listen to stories and not say, oh, well, this happened to me. No, just listen to the story. We don't need anybody to qualify their story against my story. This is my story. You know, there's don't minimize my story with with that, you know, I'm telling you what's going on. Just listen. Just listen to me. You know, does, I'm not trying to pass judgment on anybody's story because it's your story to own. We've got to listen to one another uh, and, we, and we can't be afraid anymore. We just cannot be. There's, this is no time to be afraid of anything of saying something.
0: Here again is Portia Cavett from Omaha, Nebraska.
2: I hope and
5: pray that we will uh, realize that it is time uh, for us to come together, that if you don't see uh, the evil in a Black person uh, being murdered by the police or someone else, then the soul of um, our nation, our church, Uh, is really dead because we're not really standing up uh, to the creed that we are supposed to love everyone. Yes, we're supposed to lift our voices and protest and demand uh, justice and insist on accountability. It's important for us to realize that we are a diverse nation. And so if we are a diverse nation, then we should get to know everyone. If you're only interacting with people that look like you, uh, that uh, live like you are part of your family, then are you really a part of the human race? And so to uh, come together is to build relationships. And we say that Jesus is Lord and that we are followers of Jesus Christ, then we are to uh, show our love for everyone, show our love one to another, not just those that make us feel comfortable or those that um, look like us. So it, it's amazing. We'll jump uh, to, Uh, different races or people of color when we feel that they need our help. So why is it that you have to feel like you're Superman or Superwoman and you're going to bring about change when you're not really addressing it? Because if we say all lives matter, then we ought to be there for everyone. And I don't think that America and even United Methodists are really taking it serious when they hear black lives matter because evidently you don't think that their lives matter and you see it as a negativity to want to say that blue lives matter, gay lives matter or whatever. You're still not hearing black persons say that our lives do matter because every time a black life is taken, the person
0: who took it is not held accountable. Here again is Robert Johnson from Wichita.
3: My prayer and hope is that churches will engage and stay engaged uh, now that's we've we've always we always hope that but typically as you say a week a month later things kind of fade to the background I think what may be different this time is I think that by the time these protests end that so much will have been torn upside down in terms of relationships and even unfortunately, property systems that it will demand a new normal for all of us. So COVID-19 is is demanding a new normal, and now this is demanding a new normal. Uh, And so I I think it's going to be very difficult for churches to go back to business as usual.
0: Here again is Rhonda Kingwood from Wichita.
6: I have seen um, some great... Um Posts, and I've seen you know people stepping up, and like I said, the rallies were were very diversified, and like you said, from young to old um, and so I think I think we're we're getting there. I think we just got to do a little push <laughs> to get folk um, you know really able to speak out because yes, you know, coming to the rallies and standing with us, but when you have a platform, um, you need to use that platform. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think as pastors and as shepherds, um as leaders, I think we have to be the first ones to really, uh, understand what it means to act justly and, and to speak against the injustices. Because when we think about the injustices that happened with Jesus, um, he, he, I mean, you know, he was a refugee. He was, you know, you could say he was an immigrant. He was all of those things. And, um, people, you know, uh, dealt with him unjustly and you know he still you know uh, had to keep keep moving he still had to keep fighting and so I think and he's asking us he's saying listen I need you to speak against it I need you to be there for the defenseless I need you to be there for those that can't fight for themselves those cries that are crying from the grave we've we got to still fight for them and I think we all have to do it and so I am just really pushing that, you know what, speak in your congregations.
0: Here again is Kevis Harding from Wichita. Then you have
1: COVID-19 where uh, the ones who are suffering from this the most are African-American communities, are, are black people. So you got, you're got you trying to overcome this and this, and it's like, I'm tired. And so as a police officer, I'm like, I don't condone the riots or the looting. Uh, but I understand the pain it's 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 when it will just stop and and so as a clergy particularly a black clergy i have been saying I need to hear my white clergy say this is wrong I don't need you just to talk about the piety and how I love Jesus I need you, need you to I mean the same energy that we're about to split our church over would would what what would the ordination again, lesbians and transgender, and, and all those—that same energy that you're running for—I need to see that from your pulpit too, for for Black people, who who who's been suffering with COVID-19 forever. I'm asking my local clergy right here in this annual conference that decision shouldn't be just a, a Black pastor speaking about social justice, but but educating all of our churches, white churches, Hispanic, all of our churches, and it should be all of our clergy. I mean, I think Pentecost Sunday, every preacher who had a prophetic voice on the injustice in America and what they saw should have been preaching on this topic, not just black people, not just black pastors. Uh, Everyone said, because this is unjust, we cannot say racism is cool. I mean, stand on the sideline. I mean, if you're in a place where you have been privileged all of your life and don't understand, this, come and let us sit down and dialogue and understand, uh, so that you can understand that that we need to change our system. That's what I want to do. You know, it's time for policy. I just don't
4: want to protest.
0: Here again is Kirsty Engel from Lincoln, Nebraska. From your peaceful
4: protest. What I'm hoping this will do is bring leaders all over each city to have a plan. The, the bottom line is when we establish that strategic plan of how we come together, how we open up the doors for communication and dialogue and uh, change in uh, police laws and laws in general and voting is we keep on that we keep, we develop the plan and we keep on the plan. It it is important not to be sensationalized. In other words, oh this is the hot topic. You know, we, we can't just, you know, be, I guess, react like reactive. This is a proactive measure to say it is time, just like we have a tornado shelter plan and we should have a pandemic plan. Amen. We need to have a plan you know, for how do we reduce incidents of this type of brutalization with police and community, black and brown community in particular.
0: Racism. Some people would call it our nation's original sin, and it's very real. We've seen it play out in our society. We've started with protests so what's next? What can your church do? What can you as an individual do? How do we together make sure George Floyd's death leads to meaningful change in American society? I think we turn to scripture and I think we turn outside our buildings, something we should be good at now, thanks to the pandemic, to engage our communities, our entire community. I'll let D. Williamson have the last word.
2: Uh, we are not powerless here. And the powers that be don't want you to ask questions. We need to ask the questions and say, why is that on the books? Who put that on the books? Where did it come from and how do we get it off? You know, and somebody's going to know, well, this is what we need to do to get this off. We need to put a petition together or we need to do this. We need to do that, you know, and we need to work together. And this is going to be a long haul. This is long work. Um, you know, even in our great Church of the United Methodist, you know, we We, it just makes me blow air, I guess. Uh, It's a long journey. It's been a long journey, long journey.
0: Terms is a podcast sponsored by the Great Plains Conference of the United Methodist Church and by me, your host, Todd Seifert. If you liked what you heard in this episode, please go rate us and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you're listening. It helps other people find us. And please, if you feel so inclined, share us on Facebook or other social media. Our music comes via a licensed subscription with First com Music. You can find archived podcasts on my website, toddseifert.com, or via a link on the conference website, greatplainsumc.org podcasts. Feel free to email me any questions or suggestions to tcipher at greatplainsumc.org, and I'll do my best to respond as quickly as possible. Thanks again for listening. And until next time, please do what you can to help make more disciples of Jesus Christ. You can play a small part in helping change a life.